Our storyteller for this morning is none other than Ben Steele. Intellect, yes. Physique, check. <laughs> Wonderful mother, check. An amazing wife, check. I asked him to choose one if he could only say one of those things. We'll see what he says. Ben Steele, come on up. Thank you, Peter. Obviously, I'd go with the physique, so just to let you know. <laughs> um, so good morning. Um, as I thought about over this, the, the course of this week, what story to tell, I considered the various times in my life where I felt God leading me, um, restoring me, real tangible moments of grace, uh, even times when, as a church, at a, as a church body, um, I was uplifted and restored in times of darkness. But uh, considering Pastor Julie, or as I call her mom, uh, her sermon, I thought it was appropriate to share a story uh, about truth and confession. As many of you know, I am married to the wonderful interim children's director, pastor, minister, ICDMBFTQ, whatever she just said, uh, Elise. And it's a good thing that you're all sitting down, because I'm about to drop a bombshell on you guys. Um, as a married couple, we've been known to disagree. Yes, I know, this is shocking. Audible gasp right now, yeah. Um, and even on occasion, it's led to arguments. So, um, I know you're gonna have to kind of really stretch your imagination here. Uh, I pray that you'd be gracious to me as you empathize with somebody uh, who argues with their spouse on occasion, because I know you all have never done that. Um, so you just need to imagine it with me. So here we are, a relatively newlywed couple, and by newlywed I mean just getting back from our honeymoon, and we got married and decided to close on a house in the same week. Not something I recommend. Um, so not only did we have the unpacking of our honeymoon bags and whatnot, but we also had the unpacking of a house to deal with. And so we, here we are moving things from the bedroom to the living room and um, rearranging things, and we got to the kitchen. So my wife and I started unpacking the kitchen. And oh, by the way, when I was talking to my wife about sharing this story, she said, you are going to share the story correctly, right? And I said, well, you won't be here, so I will. It'll be my version of the story, right? So she's not here to defend herself. You can ask her about her side of the story uh, later if you want. But I promise I'm going to give this story with the least amount of bias as possible. Um, so here we are unpacking the kitchen, and here we come to our brand new toaster that we've gotten for our wedding. And uh, there was some discussion about where this toaster belongs. Now, one of us, I'm not going to share who, all right, I don't want to give that away and give my bias away or anything like that, but one of us had the rather reasonable and logical position that a, that a toaster belongs on the counter for, because it's frequently used, right? The other one had a rather crazy idea that a toaster belongs in the cupboard. I know, right? I'm not, again, I'm not going to say who had whose idea. Um, but one of us thought the toaster belongs on the counter. The other one said, you know, it belongs in the cupboard, and you bring it out each and every time you have to use it, which seems like quite frequently and could be a bit of a hassle. Again, I'm not going to say who had that opinion and who didn't. But uh, our discussion about where the toaster uh, belongs erupted into a rather large argument. Until, until uh, a few minutes into the argument, the F word was dropped. Fine. Fine. You win, have it your way, 
this is where the toaster belongs, and then walk away. That's what my wife said to me, or something to that effect. And with that, I won the argument. Or not really. Um, the situation continued to grow, and I realized that in that moment, I had kind of lost the forest for the trees. The, the, the value of where this toaster belonged and me proving that I was right was superseding the vows that I had just taken on this very stage about two weeks prior to love and honor and serve my wife. And so I realize that I have a tendency towards wanting to be, over right, wanting to be right over wanting to be gracious. And even though I felt convicted at that time that I wasn't upholding my marital duties and my promise to cherish and love my wife as I wanted to, I wish I could say that that was the last dumb argument that we ever got into, but it hasn't been. And I still continue to find myself wanting to prove a point to die on this hill or to die on that hill, even though I know that I may be sacrificing my husbandly duties in the process. Thomistic scholar Dr. Peter Kreft says that truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Just let it loose and it will defend itself. I often think that I rush too quickly into defending my version of the truth. I want to prove a point that I'm right, that I'm smarter, that I've done more research, that I'm more logical. And in the process, oftentimes I find that I sacrifice the spirit of the vows that I pledge to my wife and the call to die to myself to live for Christ. So I pray that as I mature in my relationship with God and as my relationship with Elise deepens, that I may be able to resist the temptation to want to be right over wanting to be gracious. I hope that my marriage and fatherhood will allow me and allow God to work through me in such a way that my pride turns to graciousness, that my heart of stone turns to a heart of flesh filled with both grace and truth. And with that, we turn to our scripture for this morning. Our scripture will be read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. You can follow along on the screens next to me or in your Bibles in the pews. First of all, then, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in, a godless, in, God, in a godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works and is proper, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. 
A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. When I do not, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be persevered through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The word of the Lord. Well, takes a lot of guts for me to come up here after that scripture reading. (laughs) But here I am, and I'm going to do it. Good morning to all of you. I'm Julie Steele. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen. And yes, how excited was I when I saw that the date that I was to preach had these verses in them. Kind of a little game, I think, that God thought this was funny. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy, and I feel like it's really important for us to get some context here and to figure out the different books of the Bible, kind of a tutorial on how do we interpret scripture. 1 and 2 Timothy both are known as pastoral letters, because this is a letter to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, a leader um, of the church in Ephesus. And it's important for us to remember that this book was written to him as a pastor, uh, because it's going to help us interpret what is being said here. Now, I think that there are, as you all know, many books in the Bible. There's 66, and I have this fun little chart up here to show you that there are different genres of the Bible, and they are divided in different ways. So you have books of the law, history, poetry, prophets, letters. The point is that we cannot read all of these books with the same lens we will not understand what it's saying. And so I'm emphasizing that this book of Timothy was written to him, not to the church like many of other Paul's letters were written to churches, but written to Timothy as a leader and explaining to him how he needs to lead this congregation in Ephesus. So the covenant denomination uh, is known for its belief in the centrality of the word of God. And its tagline has always been, where is it written? In other words, you say this, but where is it written in God's word? And today, I'm going to say that to interpret scripture, we need to ask a few more questions. We need to say, where is it written? However, who was it written to? And why was it written? This book uh, was written uh, a few years after Paul had already ministered in the town of Ephesus. So we know that it was written to Timothy as a leader by Paul. Why was it written? Well, the reason this book was written was to squelch unorthodox doctrine, address disturbances in the public worship service, and the misleading teaching that was going on. Now, a reason for these problems even coming up in the church, we need a little background here, something called syncretism. Syncretism is the melding of different ideas and in this case, different religions. You see, Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Artemis, or in the Roman culture, they called her Diana. And so it's most likely that these new Christians were mixing what they already knew with this idol worship in with their new Christianity. The book of Acts, we read where Paul is in Ephesus a few years before, 
And on one of his previous journeys, the people there were really mad at Paul because he was preaching against idol worship. And they were saying, whoa, he's going to ruin everything that goes on here. We're making a lot of money off of this idol worship. So it says here in verse 27, not only is there danger that this trade of ours building the idols, fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So clearly the rituals, the religious rituals, had infiltrated the worship of Christ. Now, it sounds like Timothy had his hands full with this congregation. The early church was similar to our modern-day startup company. Things are kind of pulled together. There's no manual in place. You're just trying to get your message out, trying to get a focus. And I think that that was probably a real challenge for this inexperienced young pastor here, Timothy. He needed to stay focused. He needed to have hard conversations with his parishioners about their behavior. Leadership is hard. Nobody wants to be the leader. We all want to help, but we don't want that responsibility, do we? There's a weight that comes with it, and I'm sure Timothy felt the same way. Now, this letter that Paul wrote was addressing specific problems at specific times in a specific place. This letter was not meant to be or understood as a timeless manual on how to run a church. All scripture is God-breathed. That is true, but we need context. So in order to interpret these verses that we see here and any other book in the Bible, we have to use the correct context. I think the parables are a real example for us in this. Jesus told parables to his audience, and when we read them, we don't really understand the full impact until we start looking into the culture and answering the questions, what were they hearing, and why was it so familiar to them when it wasn't familiar to us? Now, verse 8 here, as we start off with this chapter 2, is a strong call to prayer. But the directive is specifically to men because culturally it would have been the men who could publicly pray. This was a patriarchal culture, society. Prayer was to be made for kings and all in authority. Now, Paul's goal was not that these Christian Ephesians would start to pray. His goal really was to have them pray differently. The difference concerned who they prayed to, why they were praying, and how they were praying. The melding of religions could have meant that there was confusion as who they should be praying to. Was it a goddess? Was it multiple gods? What was this? And so Paul reminds Timothy as the leader to make sure his congregation is praying as Christians and not as idol worshipers. This is really important. Now, verses 3 through 6, I have highlighted here, and I know it's hard to see the other verses, but I want you to focus on these verses here because I believe these verses are the main focus 
of what Paul is trying to say. He's saying this right here, that the desire that God wants all men saved, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, that is the focus. That is the message that cannot be lost in all of these other distractions. So the cure for a polytheistic syncretism, try saying that 10 times, is uncompromising monotheism. You see, the beginning of Timothy, back in chapter 1, Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Paul's debunking false doctrine all through this letter. It seems that Artemis was a principal competitor to Jesus. And one epithet to this goddess reads, she alone is permitted to save those who take refuge in her. Interesting, huh? So let's bring this back to us. We may not be praying to another God. We may not be questioning the truth that Jesus is the mediator for us or that he wants all people saved. But how might we not be praying correctly? I've been convicted this week a lot about, as I've read these verses, I do not pray very often for those in authority over me especially in our secular society. I don't know if I have really put into practice that God wants all people saved. It's hard to pray for people you don't like. Am I the only one? Probably not. Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for those who have offended you or maybe even oppress you? This last week, I heard something that many of you probably have also heard, and that is a statement that was released by the family of one of the uh, members that had lost a family member at the Cascade Mall shooting in Burlington. The shooter committed suicide this last week. And one of the families, again, who lost a loved one, released this statement. We're understandably in shock over this development. Our heart goes out to Mr. Seaton's family the shooter. We pray that the man repented to God before his death. While this event puts to rest our fears of his release, we harbor no ill will towards Mr. Seaton or his family and pray for their comfort as we know all too well the pain of grief. This family understands that God wants all people saved. They know that God's desire even for the one who killed their family member, was for salvation. Now these verses, like I said here in 3 through 6, are the main point, and we have to stay focused on that. And verse 8, when you drop down, says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, it says that because Christ died for all, the order then is we want everybody to be praying for everybody because we know that this is the truth. Now, the lifting of holy hands refers to a common position of prayer then. It also refers to uh, spiritually clean hands, not holding a grudge, not being angry with one another while praying. That would be praying with unholy hands. 
Timothy, don't let complaining or doubting or contention get in the way with your congregation of the main thing. Lead with that in mind. Don't let prayer be tainted by wrong thinking. Now we move on to the women. Likewise, women, don't behave in a way that distracts from the main thing. Again, we're getting away from what we're all about here is what he seems to be saying. Don't dress in such a way that people notice your outward appearance more than the good works that reflect Christ within you. In other words, people should see Christ first, not you. Now, the irony of this message was not lost on me this last week as I was looking at these verses. My son is getting married next Friday, and I am trying to put together the perfect outfit for this wedding. I have my dress hung up with no less than five pairs of shoes that I've ordered online, all in a array to see which ones are going to look the best. I have jewelry laid out, different colors of nail polish. I mean, I am working really hard on this thing because nobody wants to look like the mother of the groom. So I thought this was pretty funny that God had me in these verses as I am all in a dither over this outfit. Now, some of the theories of what is happening here are that possibly the wealthy women were coming into the congregation dressed to the nines and just going over the top to show off and that it was really making the other women feel inferior. We don't know. But clearly, Paul's statement about braids and pearls, gold and expensive clothing were not universal statements meant to be followed by all women for all time. These are specific to a specific group of women. If this message were universal for all women for all time, most of us women would have to get rid of 80% of what we have. I just don't think that's the case. There's also a thought that the women had been devoted to Artemis, this goddess, and they were trying to dress to imitate her. This would be bringing false doctrine into the church. And even though I think that we can agree that this was not meant to be a universal statement, again, for all women, we can't ignore it's here in the Bible. There is a reason it is here. You see, the universal and timeless message for women and men today is that modesty is not an outdated concept. We should not be dressing in a way that causes others to question our claim to be a Christian. Now, you all know, I love clothes, I love shoes, I love jewelry, all of that stuff. So I'm not coming to you from a perspective of being some prim and proper prude. However, I myself am surprised by what I see women wearing out in public. And I don't mean just young women. The message it sends is, look at me. This is all there is. There's an insecurity that comes through when showing off too much of ourselves. Right or wrong, we all judge appearance. People look at the appearance. God looks at the heart. That is true. So I'm going to go out here on a limb and probably offend some of you. What's the deal with Sierra? 
Russell Wilson's wife, singer. This woman claims to be a Christian. I'm not going to judge her heart. However, the way she dresses conveys a very different message, and it does bother me. She's saying things like, God is good all the time. But as she's saying those words, I'm thinking, aren't you cold? I just can't focus on it. Okay, so I'm done now. So the universal principle here is that we should be known for our actions or our good works, again, men and women, that reflect Christ. That is a lot harder to do than focusing on our outward appearance. All right, so how do we read verses 11 to 12 specifically here? Are these universal or are these to a specific group? Well, it's hard to make the case that these verses are a mandate for the church when the previous ones right up here clearly are not, right? I can't begin to tell you how much reading I have done on this subject this last week. Not like I haven't studied it before, but I really wanted to get this one right. And I can tell you, and you think I, you probably already know where I stand because I am here, correct? Uh, but I read every commentary, both sides of the aisle, trying to understand. And I looked up most of the verses that pertain to women in ministry. I can't possibly share with you all of it. I'm hoping you will take the time to dive into this subject yourself if you are unclear or uncomfortable with uh, the stance that I'm going to be talking about. And I also want to let you know that we have two resources. I'm going to hold these up for you out in the lobby area that are put out by our denomination that I would encourage you, if you have questions, you can always go online, too, to check it out. One is called Called and Gifted, and it's a, just a little booklet that goes through the affirmation of women in ministry. The other is more lengthy but very thorough. This is a biblical and theological basis for women in ministry, which is put out by our denomination when they chose to ordain women back in 1976. I'm going to read one paragraph for you because I think it's important for you to hear this. Ministry of women is neither derived from society's ideas nor a partner to its extremes. For a tradition that is based on the question, where is it written, only one foundation is satisfactory for having women minister in the name of Jesus Christ. Women ought to minister not because society says so, but because the Bible leads the church to such a conclusion. A legitimate biblical and theological basis for women in ministry is therefore crucial to the ongoing implementation of the covenant's decision regarding the ordination of women. This paper was not written lightly or over a short period of time, and it was wrestled with over and over to make sure that they came down on a position that was truly what the Bible meant. So I encourage you to, to read that. So how do I feel about these verses? Well, a friend of mine gave me this mug when I got my permanent credentials. And I want to share with you a bit of my own journey on this because at one time, I myself interpreted these verses and a few others to mean that women were not permitted to be in leadership roles in the church. I believed that. I was not resentful about it. 
I was not going to want to change it. I was very comfortable and believed that this was God's role for women and way of doing things, and that was fine with me. Well, almost 20 years ago, I would have told you that men and women are created equal in Christ, but God set up a very specific hierarchy of leadership in the church, and that's called a complementarian view. We're equal but different, and therefore, that means we have different roles. Now, at that time, we had deacons in the church, and they're similar to ministry team leaders that we have now. And I was asked to be a deacon of children's ministry. And when I was asked this question, I had to wrestle with, well, wait a minute. I can't do that. I'm a woman. So how is that going to happen? And should it happen? Well, I started my own study. I took some seminary classes. I started looking at original uh, words in the Greek, and just I really wanted to know the truth. I did not want to go against what God set up as good. That was never my intent. Well, I went from a complementarian view to what's called an egalitarian view, which means there are no boundaries for men or women in leadership roles. I had never looked at the whole context of the verses or the other verses that are used to make a case against women in ministry or limiting what they could do. Psalm 19, 160 says, The sum, S-U-M, of your word is truth. Looking at the sum or the entirety of the Bible gives us truth. Now, going back to the beginning of our message we see that the context gives greater insight and clarity to the meanings of these ancient texts. And when I say ancient texts, I do not mean outdated or irrelevant. I'm saying they need to be understood in light of who, when, and why they were written. Verse 11 says that women should receive, uh, quietly receive instruction in submissiveness. Let me go back to that. Um, However, the women in Timothy's congregation were being disruptive by asking questions and interrupting the speaker. These women would not have been educated. That just wasn't the culture then. And they were trying to understand the teaching. And this reminds me of when my husband and I are watching a movie, and we actually were watching a movie last night about World War I, and I am completely lost, and I'm saying, wait a minute, who said this, and who's the German guy? Wait a minute, didn't they do this? And he's like, I'll tell you afterwards, stop interrupting me. And I kind of feel the frustration of these poor women. It's like, ugh, I just want to know now. But as far as teaching, these women would not have been in a place to teach since they were uneducated, new believers, and going back to the synchronism, were involved with false teaching. Paul said, you can't let these people teach in church. This was a specific message to this group of women. Now, looking at the whole scripture, there are many other places that women are in leadership roles. Going back to the Old Testament, we see Deborah. We also see all of the disciples who supported Jesus' ministry. We also see all the women that Paul mentions in his own ministry as fellow laborers of the mission. As I said, I don't have time to go over all of this today, but a lot of these women are listed in the resources that I've told you about. 
Now, I know that there are men who claim that the egalitarian view tries to blur the lines between men and women, trying to say men and women are the same. Well, I don't know who in their right mind could ever make that statement. I see it very differently. Men and women are very different. They think differently, they see things differently, but I think that it's because of that difference that both men and women should be equal in leading in the church. If I only learn from women, that is not a full reflection of who God is. Men and women were created in God's image. God is not a man, God is not a woman, God is spirit. We miss out on a more full view of the heart of God when we limit or restrict ourselves from one group or the other, men or women. Now, the word authority here that we see means to domineer or usurp or to take over. The Greek word here is only used in this one in particular instance. It's true that women should not have that kind of authority over men, nor should men over women. This group of women were trying to exercise an unhealthy dominance over men. And part of this could have come from the goddess Artemis, who they were worshiping, because she promoted superiority over men. And so this could have influenced these new Christians' behavior. Paul's not saying that women should not teach or have authority. As in other scriptures, Paul puts women in charge of home churches. He is, however, addressing the issue of certain women who are being domineering in the community worship in Ephesus. When viewed in light of the biblical narratives of women leading, teaching, and speaking with prophecy throughout the New Testament, we can conclude that Paul is restricting false teaching and inappropriate behavior, not women in general, from participating in the worship of the church through teaching, leading, and speaking. So, Timothy needed to be a leader by doing a course correction in his congregation. He needed to be focused on the goal of spreading the gospel, the truth, and eliminating the distractions from the worship service. That meant instructing his congregation on Christian prayer, behavior, and doctrine. The distractions needed to stop in the church if the message was going to be spread and be heard. Paul encourages Timothy to teach his congregation to pray in a new way. Pray as those devoted to Christ alone, for there is only one mediator between God and humankind. That is the message of the world. The world still needs to hear this today. When you pray, do you pray for everyone, including secular leaders, especially the ones you didn't vote for? Do you pray to have peaceful lives for human dignity? Do you trust in Christ and no other gods or goddesses? So how's your prayer life? Is there someone or a group of people that you need to be praying for? Maybe it's someone you don't like. 
That's really hard to do. Is there anything you're doing that could cause others to see you instead of who Christ is? And what's distracting you from Christ-centered worship? This church in Ephesus was having problems in engaging in Christ-centered worship. What might that be for us today? What might we need to let go of that we think is biblical, but it's just traditional? And what about our own church here at Evergreen? Are we focused on the gospel message, or are we doing anything that is hindering others from hearing and believing this main message? Now, honestly, I think that one of the areas that we really do have a problem here is with our children's ministry. There are a handful of people who commit week after week to serving our kids. And what does it say to our kids when they are seeing a different face? There's no consistency, and everybody's too busy. I think we really need to look at that and think about the message that we're sending. And do you need to let go of any false doctrine, maybe focusing on good works, maybe not consciously, just subconsciously, like the more I do, the more church meetings I go to, the better Christian I am, or putting more trust in your finances or your material goods than you are in Christ. Those are false doctrines too. What is it for you? I don't know, but I know that each of us has something today that God is trying to tell us. I want to let you know that after the benediction, we are going to have some of our uh, prayer team up here in the front available to you to be prayed for. If there's something that you heard today or just something going on in your life that you would like to have prayer for, I would encourage you to stay behind and take advantage of that and be prayed for. It's a wonderful experience. So we got through that together. You haven't thrown anything at me yet. I just want to say that I have respect for all positions that people take if they have really sought out scripture. What I find is that we have so many disagreements about things that we haven't really looked at wholeheartedly. And I want everybody to be able to stay at the table no matter if you believe in uh, egalitarian or complementarian or traditional or whatever it is, this is a place for us to be together, to be the body of Christ, and to wrestle with this, these things together, as long as we keep the main thing the main thing, and that is God wants all people saved, and that is our message. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place today. We thank you, God, that you are the one and only who is worthy to be worshipped, worthy of our worship. God, I pray that each of us would have ears to hear and hearts to understand what you are saying to each of us individually today and as a church body. Thank you for each person here, God. Thank you, Lord, that you are here with us. In your name we pray, amen.